The early 1990s in South Africa were times of huge hope and optimism. Nelson Mandela had been released and the country looked forward to free and open elections for all citizens of the country. Then, in 1993, a huge setback as the fragile ceasefire was breached. South African Defence Forces killed five black youngsters setting in train a tit-for-tat revenge attack by the armed wing of the Pan-Africanist Congress, a black nationalist liberation movement. On the 30th of December, four people died at a Cape Town restaurant, and one of them was a 23-year-old white woman, Lindy Furry. My name is Mark Dowd, and in this edition of Things Unseen, the programme for those of you who think there's maybe more to life than the purely physical, I'm joined almost incredibly by two people who were involved in the events of that fateful day, Lindy's mother, Jin Furry, and Letlapa Mfaheli, the man who gave the command for the attack on the Heidelberg Tavern, a venue that was popular with members of the South African Defence Forces. The fact that they're here side by side suggests you're about to hear a most extraordinary tale. Jin, if I can start with you, can you tell us a little bit about your daughter, Lindy? What was she like? She was 23, tall, dark, beautiful, just finishing a civil engineering degree at the University of Cape Town. So she was at the Heidelberg Tavern that night just to show friends what a multicultural restaurant was like in a apartheid-governed state. And she was also herself a very vociferous opponent of apartheid. She was, in terms of the white friends, particularly in our social group. She was very articulate about the injustices. And on the day of the attack, you'd been out of contact with her for an awful long time. At what point did you realise what had actually happened? We'd seen her the afternoon before, and she had taken my husband's bucky. It's a utility vehicle to help move her friend's furniture the next day. And so we phoned her the next day and there was no reply. The phone just kept ringing. I consoled my husband who was very concerned. Then the friend phoned and said, Lindy was coming to help me. Do you know where she is? And then who broke the news about what actually happened? Well, we got home at four o'clock in the afternoon and a friend was sitting in the driveway when we arrived, she came over and said, let's go upstairs and talk. And I said, what do you want to take me upstairs for? It's Lindy, isn't it? She's dead. You knew? Otherwise, you'd be rushing me to the hospital. She said there's been an attack. We hadn't looked at the news or read newspapers because we'd taken friends to see the beauties of the Western Cape. Did you ever think in your wildest nightmares that something like that could happen? Well, we knew it could happen because there'd been attacks on other civilian targets, but one somehow doesn't think it can happen to you, and it was a shock. Latlapa, you went into exile at a very young age when you were 17. Why did you do that? I went into exile, leaving my school, my village, my family, and the reason for doing that, the country was ablaze with militancy, a year before 1977, a great South African liberation movement leaders was killed in detention. And two years before, there was a nationwide student uprising. People of my age were already absorbed into struggle for freedom. And I felt strongly that I had to play my role. 
no one agitated me, no one recruited me, but the circumstances resulted into my action. Earlier in your life, you were a born-again Christian, but then as a freedom fighter, you went on to become an atheist. What happened to provoke that journey in your own faith story? Yes, indeed, I was a born-again Christian. I was a fanatic. I used to move from village to village, going house to house, trying to convert people into Christianity. And unfortunately, I did not convert a single soul. It was the importance, the indifference of Christians towards apartheid, oppression, exploitation. So the promise of the world hereafter, of paradise, to me no longer made sense. I abandoned formalized faith or church going, but still I prayed privately. But once I was in exile, exposed to literature by people like Karl Marx, I stopped praying and I embraced atheism. You said once that the people who carried out the attack aren't really the people with the responsibility. It's the people who actually gave the orders. And of course, you were a very senior in the command operation. 20 years on, do you have regrets at all for what you did? I do have regrets for the loss of life. I do have regrets that one could have struggled in a way that would have no violence. But having said that, I do not regret my role in the resistance against oppression. The journey that I've traveled so far has taught me that there are other ways of resisting oppression than actually to spill the blood of the people who oppress you. Jin, the people who were arrested and put on trial, you knew who they were quite quickly. At what point did you realize that this man, Letlapa, was the person who was actually behind the operation? Just four years after Lindy was killed, that I became aware of Letlapa's name. But he was either in prison or in exile or escaping the police. And then five years later in 2002, you did finally catch up with him. Tell us how that happened. I turned the radio in my car on, which is something I very seldom do. I heard an interview with Litlapa and he was launching his book, Child of the Soil, that very day. I was a lecturer at the University of Cape Town and I made sure that my lectures were all taken care of and I got myself down there to the waterfront to the book launch. Letlipa, when you were at that book launch, did you see Jin there in front of you at this event? And did you know who she was? I didn't know who she was. And of course, if you don't know who the person is, you can mistake them for journalists. I thought that she was one of those people who had come for a book launch. But my publisher had warned me that some of the people who would be in the audience are those who suffered at the hands of Azanian People's Liberation Army, APLA. I should brace myself for tough questions. But I could not think that she was one of them. And Jin, at what point did you, as it were, declare yourself and make yourself known to this man who was launching his own book? I felt quite sorry for Litlapa at the time with the press. They were making condemnatory statements about the fair and fair democratic elections already being in place, and yet he continued to use violence. So I felt some compassion for him. But this was the man who'd basically given the order for the death of your daughter. In the way he replied and responded and in the way 
that he treated me when I did declare myself and I stood up and said, I'm Jin Free, the mother of Lindy, who was killed at the Heidelberg Tavern, and asked if he hadn't trivialised the reconciliation, commissioned by not participating. He came to me straight from the podium and asked if we would meet with him as a family. So I met with him a couple of days later at Parliament. At what point did the notion of forgiving this man enter into your soul? Oh, I thought I'd already forgiven him. But when I heard the anger in my own voice, I just remember feeling that there's did, did anger she, there. Did she seem angry to you on the day? Well, I didn't perceive that anger. I thought it was emotions. Yes, I was very emotional when he came from the podium. You knew because of the anger you had that you hadn't really forgiven him, not at least not properly. Well, you know, you can't forget. So forgiving is a process, but I was surprised at my anger. Where did that desire to forgive, need to forgive, where did that come from in you? I'm very impressed by the gospel. I'm not a religious person, but the gospel impresses me enormously. Two years before Lindy was killed, I'd read Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and he suggests you create your own mission statement. My mission statement was to extend God's grace to each person I meet. Even though you're not particularly religious? Yes. I don't get the dogma and the rules and regulations. I intensely admire the gift of the Son of God dying on a cross. Models for me the responsibility God took of making us with the potential to choose between good and evil. And then when we chose to make bad choices, he had a plan to help us love anyway and demonstrated that unconditional love. What form did the forgiveness take? Was it simply your body language and your manner, or was there a moment where you uttered those words? I asked Latapa if he was a person of faith. Latapa might want to say how he responded to that. Well, surely I'm not, and I wasn't at the time, but there was a temptation to lie to her that I do believe in God because I was afraid of hating her for the second time. First, a killer. Secondly, a non-believer. I thought that would be very dishonest. And dishonesty cannot form a foundation upon which a lasting relationship can stand. So I had to be truthful to her that actually I'm an atheist. You've talked about being humbled by Jin's decision to forgive you. You have something inside of you as a person that almost needed someone to make that act of forgiveness. Were you looking for it? Yes, indeed. I would say there was a need for it. It was reported that after Jean had forgiven me, I was released from prison. Jean strongly felt that the matter should be taken with the editorial staff because that was not true. But I said metaphorically it was true because after you have forgiven me, I was released from prison. Not prison with physical walls and physical bars. Prior to that gift of forgiveness by Jean, charges against me were withdrawn. But I did not feel anything inside me that resembled triumph. This was not forgiveness that was asked. She forgave me without me saying I'm asking for forgiveness. I was looking forward not to ask for forgiveness, but simply to relate my story for her to understand the circumstances under which 
I grew up and took up arms. When Lothapa revealed that he had been a Bible-punching Christian and that he had asked God to relieve his people of oppression and poverty, and God had done neither, that brought tremendous understanding for me about why Lothapa resorted to atheism. Which takes us on to a very interesting next episode in your joint story because several weeks later you're in front of 2,000 plus people at this man's homecoming. You took a very, very extraordinary initiative that day. (laughs) I asked him to translate so that the elders would know what I was saying. And I said if I'd met him within the first year of Lindy's death, I would have at least tried to strangle him with my bare hands. Just as well, it was a few years then, isn't it? <laughs> it was nine years from Lindy's death to the time I met Lutlap. <laughs> I asked his people for forgiveness. I said, I've consulted my ancestors to know why we're struggling the way we are in South Africa. And they're deeply sorry for slavery, colonialism, the Boer War and then apartheid, because the Boer War and apartheid are very linked in my thinking. And the response was enormous. The woman afterwards came and cried on my shoulder because I'd lost my daughter. And one young man came and said he wants a picture taken with me because no one in his village would believe that there's a white woman who understands. And did I know that I was going to be ostracized by my community for being a kafir buti? A kafir buti is the Afrikaans expression for a white person who buddy-buddies with black people. Here you are, someone who's always opposed apartheid, and yet you're doing the apologising for the simple fact that you have white skin. That's how it would have appeared to perhaps some of the people observing the scene. Why did you feel it was appropriate for you to make this collective decision of pleading for forgiveness in front of 2,000-plus people? I had embarked on a doctoral study on forgiveness and conciliation in South Africa. I had really studied the psychological, sociological and political implications of what had happened under colonialism, how traditional indigenous beliefs had been scorned and put that together with shame and humiliation being the cause of violence. So the more you shame and humiliate, particularly a child, the greater the likelihood of violence. It's an epidemic. Enough people have been shamed and humiliated to be so angry that violence is inevitable. And somewhere it's got to be stopped. Letlapa, when you were there that day, I think you said that the applause for Jin was greater than for yourself. And it was your homecoming, which gives you some idea of what was going on. But, I mean, did you have any idea what she was going to do that day? What were you thinking as she was saying all these things? Well, I did not have any idea that she was going to say that. I wasn't surprised even when she got the loudest applause because previously white people did apologize for the sins of apartheid, but all of them, without exception, have been politicians. But there was an ordinary woman who had no political ambitions whatsoever, who is not only apologizing for apartheid. We had colonialism, we had slavery, we had transatlantic slave trade. Jean covered all of them. Hence, you know, the people resonated with that. If she was a politician, 
people could have been suspicious of her motives. She was not there for getting votes or getting support or popularity. Here was Jin asking for forgiveness on behalf of white oppressors going back decades, centuries. But had you personally struggled yourself to be able to ask her for forgiveness about what had happened? No, no, I haven't asked for forgiveness. Why not? There's a saying, an African proverb, that saying sorry doesn't heal. What heals is the action of the perpetrator. That is at the level of individuals. Africa to this day is still in the throes of injustice. If you talk about African wealth, the Africans don't enjoy their wealth. The richest continent by the poorest people. So colonialism is still there. We are exploring ways not only of strengthening interpersonal relations, but even creating a world where we will have no strife, where we are going to have justice. Jin, how have you and Latlapa built on this story to actually take this to places not only within South Africa but beyond? Our passion is for healing for ex-combatants who are still suffering from post-traumatic stress on all sides of the political spectrum. Alcoholism is rife and the rages that they suffer that are unexplainable to themselves, struggling with self-worth, struggling with who they are. And your story is one way of actually helping these people to move on. We have now committed to walking the journey with them. We're planning to build a community centre where there will be health and healing facilities. And it's with their full collaboration. It's about kick-starting a new culture of sustainability, empowerment and integrity. Lutlapa, there must be other families who've been on the end of actions which perhaps you yourself have sanctioned. Are you aware of the people who still bear resentment? who've not been able to forgive you for what you've been involved in. There are several people who are on the receiving end of my comments. I've tried to reach out to them. I wouldn't say I have as immense capacity to forgive as Jean has. I always want to reduce it to personal experience. Not long ago, my car was stolen, and I found it terribly difficult to forgive those people. And I even thought that if I had known who they are, I would actually take revenge or at least punish them. But I do have some challenges at personal level where I find forgiving difficult. What Jean has done to me is always a source of inspiration, that if someone can give you for killing their daughter, why should you be so unforgiving to lose a car, a second-hand car that was giving me a lot of problems? Actually spend more time with the, with the mechanics than with me, but still I felt so agitated to meet out punishment. Jin, of course, it was Lindy's life that was lost in the Heidelberg Tavern, not your own. Can you grant forgiveness on behalf of her No, I don't think I'm giving forgiveness on behalf of Lindy. I'm forgiving for the pain that I've experienced. And I completely understand the anger and frustration of the inconvenience of having your car stolen. For me, revenge is a knee-jerk response. That's why my definition of 
forgiveness is a process in which you take a principled decision to give up your justifiable right to revenge. And it's justifiable because if you just allow people to continue abusing you, you lose your own self-respect. The path you've trodden, has it been one where you've brought your family and friends with you completely? Or have there been times when there have been tensions where people have said, well, you know, what are you doing here? Well, I don't condone what Latlapa did in any kind of a way or what the apartheid forces did in terms of killing freedom fighters. I just don't condone that in any kind of a way. It's 20 years now since Nelson Mandela won that election in 1994, and you've both had these extraordinary journeys. Is there one element, a pearl of wisdom, something that you know now that you didn't 20, 21 years ago, in terms of you growing as a human being and changing? I'm always moved by telling the story, and humbled too, that telling the story brings hope to others. There was a little lady in the Cathedral of Glasgow where I read the audience as being completely stoic and even disinterested. The vicar wafted us down this huge nave of the cathedral and this little lady was waiting at the other end and she said to me, I've been needing to write a letter of forgiveness for 30 years and I'm going to do it tonight. And that makes it worthwhile. You said earlier that you're not a particularly religious person and yet you were provoked into all this by the gospel. Has your own understanding of faith changed during this journey for you? Oh, absolutely. In what sense? I've become very involved with quantum physics and the understanding that the subconscious is not in our brain as it was always thought to be and that our personal energy field actually comes down to us from the ancestors. And when Latlapa says he doesn't believe in the ancestors, I think what you're saying is that you don't believe in ancestor worship. Correct. But in terms of ancestors, we all have ancestors. And the Zulu expression is that the ancestors are the shades. And when you have a stiff neck, the shades are talking to you about an emotional problem that you need to sort out so it's this understanding of a divine matrix or just a huge universal energy field through which we connect with each other, which in religious terms is God. But religiosity has made it into a set of rules and understandings that are no longer relevant to me. Lidlapa, if people can't forgive, can they move on? Well, I don't think they can move on. I've learned a lot that never judge the book by its cover, nor human beings by their color, their culture, their creed. I used to think that all white people are bad, all black people are good. But now I've since learned that humanity spreads across the entire human race. It has very little to do with a person's religion or a denomination that I have learned and actually has helped me to grow, not only as a person, but even my colleagues with whom we are together in the trenches. I think it was Archbishop Desmond Tutu who said, actually to forgive is an act of selfishness, highly philosophical. But what he was saying, you do stand to gain a lot because you let go a lot of things. 
This reminds me of some monks who are got into their religion. They were not allowed to touch a woman. There were three of them crossing the river, and there was a young girl stranded there, and one monk had to carry her. His two colleagues did not speak to him for weeks, for months, for years. They said it's because you broke the law of the monks. He said, no, I carried that girl for less than three minutes but you are carrying the girl for the rest of your life because you don't want to forgive. Final question, and it's the same question to you, Jin. Can people move on if they don't forgive? Some people say they can, but I think they're just not calling it forgiveness. Their perception is so clouded by religiosity. For me, forgiveness is essential, but it is not exclusively Christian. Any human being has the potential to forgive. Jin and Letlapa, thank you so much for sharing this amazing tale with us. My name is Mark Dowd, and you've been listening to Things Unseen for those of you who may not have a defined faith, but sense that there is more to life than the purely physical and material. Things Unseen is a CTVC production. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.